Welcome to the Leeds Church Institute podcast. To find out more about the Leeds Church Institute, visit lcrleeds.org. Tasia Scrutton, Associate Professor at University of Leeds at the School of Philosophy, Religion and History of Science, talks about some of the possibilities and pitfalls of Christianity, nature and mental health for Mental Health Awareness Week. It's really lovely to be here. Um, I, I gave a talk at LCI, I think, uh, a few years ago uh, and met such lovely people and, and uh, had such interesting conversations. So um, even if I'm only in my drawing room, uh, it's really lovely to be back. Um, I'm going to talk about the uh, relationship between Christian theology, mental health and and the natural world. Um, and this is something I talk a little bit about in my recent book. Um, but it's also something that I want to think more about. Um, and And so this talk really... Uh, reflects where I am in my thinking uh, at this particular point and um, for that reason I'd really love to hear uh, what people's thoughts are including you know whether you think it's a helpful way of looking at things uh, whether you agree with me or not um, because I'm I'm thinking things through so um, it's always helpful to think things through with others. So um, there's actually a lack of scientific studies um, proving that immersing ourselves in the natural world is good for our well-being, good for our mental health. Um, but I, I think most of it, most of us know that, that that's just true. Um, I really like a lot of what Rachel Carson has written, and her words really resonate with me when she says that those who dwell among the beauties and mysteries of the earth are never alone or weary of life. So I was really pleased to see that this year's mental health week theme is nature. Um, And when I looked on the website uh, of the Mental Health Awareness Week, um, I saw that they really draw attention to the fact that not everyone has equal access to beautiful places, uh, beautiful natural places. Uh, So people in poorer communities uh, often don't. And um, their mental health suffers for many reasons. That there are, there's a strong correlation between poverty and mental illness. Um, but we might reasonably think that the the absence of access to beautiful places is is one reason uh, that people's mental health suffers. Um, and although the mental health awareness website doesn't really point to this uh, in particular, um, in addition to people from poorer communities. Um, The Guardian newspaper uh, highlighted uh, during lockdown that many women found that they weren't able to go for much needed runs and walks and so on, uh, because at various points they could only go on their own, you could only exercise on your own or another member of your household, which, which isn't always convenient. And they found that they were victims of harassment and assault. Um, And there were some quite striking accounts there of the behaviour that women had experienced uh, when they went out running and so on during lockdown. Um, It it fitted with my own personal experience. I'm not really a runner, uh, but I am uh, a big walker. I love walking. 
Uh, and for years I found that if I went for walks, uh, not always, but often I'd have um, not only sort of annoying experiences, but but sometimes very distressing and unpleasant experiences of, of harassment and assault. Uh, this all stopped when I got my my dog, a uh, big kind of woofy uh, dog who is, of course, a complete softy. Um, but not everyone can get a dog. Not everyone wants to get a dog. You shouldn't have to get a dog to be able to to go for a nice walk on your own without getting bother. Um, so the Mental Health Awareness Week website, I think, rightly describes protecting and giving access to nature, not just as an environmental issue, but also it's a social justice issue, it's a mental health issue. Um, and these kinds of examples relating to people from poorer communities and uh, relating to the kind of gendered aspect, uh, you know, the, the ridiculousness of women still not being able to go out on their own uh, for fear of this kind of uh, experience, uh, really show us really show us why they're social justice issues and and why they're mental health issues. Um, I think the Mental Health Awareness Week website gets it right about mental health and nature. I think I think the natural world is good for our mental health, and I think there are barriers to people experiencing it. Um, that relate to social justice. Um, but I also think there are some possible pitfalls when thinking about the relationship uh, between mental health and nature. Uh, so I'm going to talk about three in particular, uh, and then I'm going to talk about some theological emphases I think can kind of help with these theological ways of seeing um, the natural world and, and theological ways of seeing uh, our relationship with the natural world particularly. So here are the three pitfalls. Um, in the first place, I, I think uh, while nature is good for maintaining mental health uh, and why, while most of us will have, you know, quite a lot of experience of that, it's not a panacea for mental illness. Um, so if, some, if someone is already kind of uh, moderately or certainly severely depressed say uh, it's not a kind of panacea or an instant pick-me-up and I'm really struck by um, a passage by a Quaker educator called Parker Palmer uh, who uh, has written quite a lot about his own experience of depression and he says the following he says I had folks coming to me of course who wanted to be helpful and sadly many of them weren't these were the people who would say, gosh, Parker, why are you sitting in here being depressed? It's a beautiful day outside. Go on, feel the sunshine and smell the flowers. And that, of course, leaves a depressed person even more depressed, because while you know intellectually that it's sunny out and that the flowers are lovely and fragrant, you can't really feel any of that in your body, which is dead in a sensory way. It's really interesting to reflect um, on what's going on here. Uh, and my, my best guess, and, and you might see something else in it, but my best guess is that um, the well-meaning friends that, that Palmer talks about are kind of advising him on the basis of what works well for them when they experience a kind of more ordinary or, or non-pathological low mood. And then they're kind of generalizing it and thinking, well, this is what I experience and depression is a bit like this, but more so, so this is going to really, really help Palmer. Um, 
But in fact, perhaps what it does is to put pressure on him um, because at that point of his life, he, he just can't feel this sort of happiness and joy. Um, and um, that means that it, it's emphasized to him that he's depressed and, and makes him feel more cut off because this is experience of joy at the beauty of nature that, that he can't share with others. Um, and maybe there's even a kind of guilt there or something like that. Um, so that's my, my first kind of worry about there being pitfalls uh, when we, we talk about the relationship between uh, mental health and nature, um, that it, it's not a, a kind of panacea uh, for mental illness. People still have severe mental illness and, and just saying to them, come and look at nature uh, isn't going to uh, in and of itself uh, cure them. Um, so a second pitfall, um, while it's correct that ecological and social justice issues do go hand in hand, uh, and I believe that very deeply, there's sometimes a mismatch between aesthetically beautiful places and places that are the best from an ecological point of view. Um, so, for example, the Yorkshire Dales, uh, if we go to Bolton, I don't know how many of you are from around here, but if you go to Bolton Abbey or somewhere, it's so beautiful, it's stunning. Um, but it's very kind of uh, treeless, for example, um, and it's often things like wooded areas or even scrubland, which is not particularly aesthetically beautiful, but it's much more beneficial for, for wildlife, um, if, for insects and, and small creatures particularly, which then feed the larger creatures um, and that increasingly need homes and food. So um, so kind of the aesthetic beauty of natural spaces and um, the natural spaces that are, are genuinely ecologically excellent um, might come together, but, but they can also kind of come apart from one another. Um, and the third pitfall, I think, is that we should be very wary of instrumentalizing nature and seeing it as just there for human consumption. Um, when we do, I think we adopt a more kind of spectatorish or consumerist view of the natural world, um, rather than seeing ourselves as part of it, rather than seeing ourselves as kind of participants. And I think that's bad for the natural world. So the example of beautiful places, you know, if we create beautiful places, they don't necessarily have the scrubland and so on that, that are really helpful for the, the wee beasties. Um, or the effects of kind of irresponsible tourism, you know, kind of um, flying a long distance to see wildlife and and being a tourist and you know maybe we want maybe we there are times when we want to do that and it's a, a privilege to do it but nevertheless um, if it's done irresponsibly then um, we're seeing loads of the beautiful natural world but in a kind of instrumental way and, and not taking into account um, the way that it um, affects the, the natural world itself. Um, so I think that can be quite bad for the natural world. I, I think, and, and perhaps we could think about the reasons for this in due course, it might also ultimately be bad for us as well. So you might be, so that's that's kind of three pitfalls. Uh, one about um, uh, nature is not a panacea for mental illness. Um, there's a mis There can be a mismatch between aesthetically beautiful places and ecologically good places. And we should be wary of instrumentalizing nature, seeing nature is valuable because it's just because it's good for our mental health or something like that. 
So you might be wondering, what on earth has this got to do with theology? Um, and I want to suggest that theology can help us to think of, um, of ourselves and of the natural world in, in more helpful ways. Um, so let's start, first of all, with how we think of humans. Uh, and this is what theologians call theological anthropology. So anthropology, view of what humans are, theological, well, we're thinking of it in a kind of um, as Christians, I, th I think, at this point. Uh, an, over, an often overlooked Christian doctrine is the belief in the resurrection of the body, uh, as distinct from the idea that uh, after death we go to heaven or hell um, as the final eschatological destination. So um, it's, it, it's kind of perhaps the idea that uh, people go to heaven and then are raised from the dead, um, rather than just the idea that someone goes to heaven and, and that's the end of the story. Um, the idea of the resurrection of the body comes as a surprise, at least to many of my university students, um, who are much more familiar with the idea of heaven and hell um, as the kind of ultimate destinations. Uh, so I'll often point to the fact that in the creed, Christians say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Oh, wow. Yeah, we didn't think of that. Well, the question of what form the afterlife can take seems a bit abstract, seems a bit irrelevant. I think it's important because if the material world is not simply a place we pass through onto a better world, then we are much more likely to genuinely love and care for it and the other creatures who share it with us. The resurrection view of the afterlife also tells us something about what humans are. It suggests that our bodies are a really important part of who we are, not just a vessel our souls happen to be in temporarily. Um, and broadly speaking, we might call this an Aristotelian rather than a Platonic view. And it's also the view of Christians like Thomas Aquinas, as well as, and I think this is, is argued well by Tom Wright, as well as the view of most of the biblical writers. Saying that we're in some sense essentially bodily is also saying that we're animals, albeit animals with some unusual traits and qualities. The philosopher Martha Nussbaum argues, I think plausibly, that denying our animality is a way of trying to resist the fact of our mortality and the fact that ultimately we'll die. Conversely, affirming our animality means affirming our mortality and so also our vulnerability and our need for others. And as we know, and perhaps especially after COVID and after lockdown, the bodily company of others is really important for our mental health. So that's a bit about how theology might help us to think better about our anthropology or our view of what humans are. Um, and now I want to turn a bit to how theology might help us to understand nature better. I want to start with um, a passage from uh, Romans, from St. Paul writing in Romans. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So really interesting passage, loads going on there, but particularly this phrase, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labour pains until now. So it seems that according to St. Paul, not only humans, but also the whole creation has been groaning with labour pains. The theologian Carmody Gray, um, drawing on Pope Francis's encyclical Laudate Si, talks about how caring for nature is a work of mercy, because like social justice directed at other humans, the natural world comprises fellow creatures of God who are also crying out for justice and salvation. So the natural world, like humans who are from poor communities or who are oppressed because they leave the if they leave the house alone uh, because they're women, they get, you know, catcalled or, or worse, um, or, or who are involuntary asylum seekers or who are discriminated against because they're, against because they're black, they're equally victims of oppression and other humans' greed, in other words, uh, victims of sin as the natural world. And so uh, the natural world um, and uh, human victims of oppression equally need justice and salvation. Carmody Gray makes the corresponding point that what we call nature um, is uh, another, uh, another creature like us, uh, you know, in need of salvation, in need of justice. Uh, but she says, correspondingly, it's not to be put on a pedestal or treated as though it's our saviour. And I want to suggest that this view of the natural world, in fact, allows for a more responsible and caring attitude towards the natural world and also provides a more realistic expectation about what we can expect from it. Um, as the quotation from Parker Palmer suggests, it's not a panacea for mental illness. We can put it on a pedestal, but if we do, it won't live up to all our expectations of it. In other words, I'm suggesting that we need to break down the barrier between the human and the natural world, both conceptually and in practice, since that will enable us to have a more genuinely caring and reciprocal, non-instrumental and therefore realistic relationship with the natural world. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Leeds Church Institute. To find out more about the Leeds Church Institute, visit lcileeds.org.